Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. John O, how are you? I am good. Welcome to episode two of season three. Episode two of season three, making it episode 302. That's right. And not only that, but it is our 50th episode of behind no the page is that and, right well we talked about it last time you may have forgotten i guess i did it, it has uh, been a month but yes we are now officially uh at 50 episodes and i believe the statistic i read said that most the vast majority of podcasts don't get past episode three or episode seven something like that people give up pretty early and i don't blame them i absolutely don't blame them but here we are at 50 and and only and let's just be clear about this there's no way we would have gotten past episode one uh, without you. So the the onus on getting to fifty has nothing to do with me. I'm just saying I'm I am the caboose at best in this situation. Well, you are the engineer, the conductor, the driver. You're the tracks we're on. You're the engine. You're everything. I'm way at the back, just sort of waving to the people. And, you know, and do you know what you're waving? You're waving your participation certificate because you did show up for every single episode. And, and you know, as they say, showing up is 90% of success. That's who makes the decisions. Yes, the people who show up. But yeah. now that we're talking about seasons and stuff, before we get into our other stuff, I want to just talk about season four a, a, a little bit. Season Wait a minute. Three... Hang on. Hey, I got to step way back now. Season three is pretty well mapped out. I know who, for the most part, there's some fuzzy stuff toward the end of the year that I'm working on, but I have a pretty good idea what season three is going to be. But uh, season four, you know, as you know, we've designed this to be sort of a timeless podcast. We don't talk about what's going on in the world. We are the Dick Van Dyke show of podcasts (laughs) where Carl Reiner said there's no topical references. And that's why the show really still works because there are no topical references in that show and we don't do them either because the idea is someone in 2050 someone in 2051 who's interested in eli marks finds him in the library or in the chip that's been implanted in the back of their head they're going to sit down and listen to this and we're not going to confuse them with references to i don't know to anything current yeah exactly so but that raises a question for me is i'm not quite sure what to do in season four i'm not sure what people are really glomming on to are they liking the interviews are they liking eli mark's chapters would they be fine just listening to eli marks and having us get out of here uh, i'm just curious as to what the audience might like yeah so this is the one chance we're gonna the one time we're gonna break out of the uh we exist in a timeless form and just say hey you guys uh let us know what you what you like and what you don't like just go to the eli uh eli marks mysteries.com that's eli marks mysteries com. Click on the contact form and just send us an email saying, hey, yeah, I want more of this, sir. I don't need more of that. Because, you know, look at the landscape around us. If you want to listen to interviews with magicians, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. Vanishing Absolutely. Inc. has a good one. Penguin Magic has a good one. Scott Wells has been doing it for 500 some episodes. Uh, you can go back in time and, and listen to Dodd Vickers' uh, uh, Magic Newswire interviews. There's a lot of options out there. So I just want to see what people are looking for. And um, I will say this, if you're listening to this in 2050, uh, don't bother sending us uh, an email because I don't think I'm going to get it. It'll, it's it, You're too late. Do you think, um, let's just do the math on that because, we're, uh, yeah, we probably won't be. 
No, we probably, probably won't. Be. Yeah, you're right. I just did the quick math. I didn't even complete the. Uh, I I didn't even carry the one. It's uh. Yeah, we're probably. I mean, we may still be listening to podcasts, but the chances of me actually still recording a podcast, unless well, there's some new drug that they come out. I with. don't know. I'm looking. I'm looking through the Zoom window right now. It's you. You're sitting there with. Uh, uh, cigarette that you lit off the last cigarette you just had. You have a <laughs> glass of scotch in front of you, and that bottle is mostly empty. I'm not sure you're going to make it till Friday. To be that's honest. probably true. You're when you put it that way. You live call. hard. You just yeah, live I hard. Do. It's not the years; it's the miles. Exactly. I hope. I hope in 2050 that all you have to do to listen to a podcast that it's somehow embedded in your little finger. You just stick your finger in your ear, and you get the. <laughs> You're going to say, hold up, I'm listening. I can't talk right now. I'm listening to a podcast. I hope they've designed it better than that. I think this would be, I mean, how handy would that be? I got one finger in my ear right now. I can listen to two podcasts at once, one in each ear. Anyway, folks, let us know what you think. And while you're hanging around the podcast, hit the subscribe button, because if we do become a little less regular in our production in season four, by hitting the subscribe button, you'll make sure you get it every wacky episode that comes out. Hey, so, uh, first of all, I, I'm thrilled that there will be a season four, or at least season four is under discussion. It is. That, that first of all, that's great for me because uh, there are people listening to this podcast who are enjoying it. But I don't care who they are, or how often they listen, or how loyal to the podcast they are. They're not getting as much joy out of it as I am. This has been an extraordinarily fun experience. For me. So to, to hear that you're thinking that we're going to go beyond three and into four is uh, is great news for me. For me. We will see. We will see. All right. Let's get down to uh, today's business. On this episode, we're listening to another story from the eighth book in the Eli Mark series. The book is called uh, The Self-Working Trick. And today's story is called The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. Uh, after we hear the story, we'll chat with a magical writer and a magical magician, Larry Haas, about that trick. All Let's right. listen to the story and then we'll talk to Larry Haas. Uh, about the trick that cannot be explained. The trick that cannot be explained. I know a trick. That statement may seem self-evident since I make my living, such as it is, as a magician. What I meant to say is, I know a trick that helps me do my job, particularly when I need to walk up to a group of strangers in a social situation and ask them if they'd like to see some magic. Experience has taught me this sort of sudden intrusion is occasionally unwelcome or, at the very least, unexpected. When I need to accomplish this interruption at a corporate event, a walk-around gig at a company function of some kind, I find dropping a key name is the quickest entry point to granting me instant access to virtually any small group. The name I say changes from company to company, but generally all I need to do is mention the name of the CEO or the highest ranking person at the event, and I am welcomed in with open arms. Excuse me, I might say to a small cluster of workers. Gretchen asked me to show you a little magic tonight. Mind if I do? Or it might be, pardon me, but Dave wanted me to demonstrate something for you. Do you have a second? There's a lot of power 
in a person's first name, particularly when that person is in charge. They hear that name, and bingo, I'm in. This ploy works equally well at wedding receptions as I move from table to table during dinner. Excuse me, but Susan and Mark wanted me to show you something. Do you mind if I interrupt? Or, pardon me, but Mitch and Brian asked me to stop by and entertain you folks for just a few moments. And I'm off and running. I was reviewing the high success rate of my approach as I stood in the basement of this unfamiliar church. Workers were setting out food on the buffet counters, and other volunteers were making the final adjustments to the small centerpieces on each of the tables that filled the low-ceilinged room. The question which was bugging me was this. My approach certainly worked for corporate events, and it worked for weddings. Would it also work at a funeral? I was about to find out. The call had, at first, seemed like any other gig request. Could I perform walk-around magic at an upcoming reception? It was only while gathering further information, the time, the place, the type of gathering, that I realized I was stepping into uncharted territory. My agent, whose raised cluelessness to a high art, seemed unfazed as she rattled off the particulars. So it's this Saturday? at Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception Church in St. Paul. The funeral is at 11, and the lunch and reception will start about noon, Elaine said, clearly reading from what were probably hastily scribbled notes. Whoa, whoa, back up a second. I was holding the tip of my pen inches above my own notes, not sure I had heard the details clearly. Did you say the funeral starts at 11? I could hear her through the phone flipping through notes. That's what I've got, she finally said. Why, is that a weird time for a funeral to start? I'm not Catholic. Neither am I, I said. But it's not the time that's grabbed my attention. Did you say I'm doing walk-around magic at a funeral? Well, no, not at the funeral. At the reception after. Doing it at a funeral might be, I don't know, weird. Oh, you think so? I was forming the words to tell her I wasn't interested in the gig when I glanced down at the calendar page in front of me. I had a corporate walk-around event penciled in for two weeks from now, but the client had suggested I use a light pencil. I wasn't holding out hope for that one. Other than this possibly disappearing gig, the month was looking pretty sparse work-wise. Are you available? Elaine said sounding more distracted than usual. I could tell her mind was moving on to other clients and other matters. Sure, sure, I said. I'll need a phone call with the client ahead of time, though, to work out the details. No problem, Elaine said. I'll lock it down and text you the deets. True to her word, my phone buzzed about ten minutes later with the details of the gig and the name and phone number of the client. How are you all doing? Sorry to interrupt, but Sue asked me to stop by and show you one of Neville's favorite card tricks. I ran that sentence over in my mind a couple of times, then tried saying it aloud, quietly, to determine if there might be any clunky consonant clusters I could trip over. It seemed fine in principle, although it really wasn't my introduction I was concerned with. 
As it turns out, it was the trick itself which was giving me heart palpitations. I had called the client after I spoke to my agent. She was a pleasant, if preoccupied, older woman named Sue. Her distraction seemed perfectly reasonable as she was planning the details of her husband Neville's funeral. And I was one of those details. The conversation was short and direct. In order to help bring out her husband's personality at the event, she wanted me to walk around and perform Neville's favorite card trick. It wasn't until she named the trick that I recognized the problem. He called it the trick you can't explain, she said. Her tone suggested she wasn't 100% certain she'd gotten the name right. She hadn't, but she was close. Do you know it? I said that I did, which was the truth. Had she gone one step further and asked if I knew how to perform it, I would have been hard-pressed to provide a fully honest response. Describing the trick would have been equally difficult. It had come by its title for a reason. It really could not be explained. Oh, my goodness, my Uncle Harry said with a chuckle. The trick that cannot be explained, you say? Well, you certainly have put your foot in it, haven't you? This was followed by another unhelpful chortle. You can either spend the afternoon laughing at me or instead offer some helpful advice, I said, snapping a bit more than intended. There's nothing saying I can't do both, Harry replied, then held up a hand to silence any response on my part. Calm yourself, Eli, not to worry. I can talk you through it. That is, up to a point. He gestured toward an empty chair at his table. He was seated in a back corner of the bar next to our magic store, Chicago Magic. The store, like the bar, was empty on this cloudy, almost rainy Wednesday afternoon. I was three days away from the funeral reception and really beginning to regret I had agreed to the gig. Di Vernon gave the trick that name because it's never really the same trick twice, Harry began. He was shifting into lecture mode, so I settled myself back in my chair. It's sort of the magical equivalent of jazz, really. Okay, so what's the structure? I was feeling I might need to take some notes and did a quick search of my pockets. No paper, which was fine, because I also had no pen. While I'd say there's a beginning, middle, and an end, but that isn't always the case. It could be the reverse. The middle can be the end. It might never get past the beginning, or when the end appears, it isn't where you thought you were headed. That's the beauty of the trick. And what is the trick? In its simplest form, the trick is what happens and what you make of what's happened. You need to be totally in the moment while simultaneously looking back and forward. Looking back at what? At what's happened so far, he said with a sly grin, and also at everything you've ever learned about magic, specifically, but not always, card magic. You're beginning to sound like a crazed Zen master or a drunken Yoda. Again, that's why Vernon named it the way he did. It's less about moves and slights, although those are vital to your success, 
and more about being in the moment and open to all possibilities. The trick, in its purest form, will be different every time. So the guy whose funeral this is, Neville, he must have been a pretty good magician if this was his favorite trick. Harry nodded slowly. It's certainly not for the beginner, but it's also not for the faint of heart. I know plenty of top-notch magicians who wouldn't perform it on a bet. Why? Well, I wouldn't say it depends on luck, because I've always believed that with the right mindset you can make your own luck. But the simple fact is, it doesn't work all the time. That is to say, a good magician can always produce a result, but it won't necessarily be a miracle. But when it works, oh, Nelly, stand back, because it can be spectacular. Let me demonstrate. Do you have a deck of cards? Better yet, two decks? While I may not consistently have paper or pen on my person, I always carry a couple standard decks with me. I handed the cards to Harry, and the lesson began. Just as Alice stepped through the looking glass into a puzzling new imaginative world, over the next two hours, Harry guided me through the Byzantine maze, which was the trick that cannot be explained. While I recognized versions of some of the effects he produced, I also witnessed miracles I couldn't explain. The results were sometimes mind-blowing, sometimes merely interesting, but every time the process and the result were not only different, but seemingly casual, unrehearsed, unplanned, often unfathomable. It might be that all four aces appeared at once at the top of the deck, or that your volunteer suddenly dealt out a winning hand of poker, or that the match to a card thought of by your helper appeared within the seemingly empty card box on the table. The number of outcomes appeared to be limited only by my imagination and skill, limitations with which I was intimately familiar, which was why the trick absolutely terrified me. Although I wasn't scheduled to work until noon, I showed up an hour earlier so I could be there for the funeral as well. It was partly out of respect, but also because I wanted to get the lay of the land and to get a sense of the man whose favorite trick I was about to perform multiple times. I made a quick check of the reception area in the church's basement, which was still in the process of being set up. Then I went back upstairs to find a seat, which was a trick unto itself. The place was packed. I finally was able to squeeze into a pew about a third of the way back and on the side, and I settled in for the funeral. By the end of the service, I felt like the biggest waste of space on this planet. Neville sounded amazing. Big-hearted, funny, the go-to guy in a crisis, your best friend, your wisest critic. Neville was extolled by speaker after speaker during the hour-long service. From nonprofit boards to overseeing pet adoptions, to speaking on climate issues, to bridge, backgammon, and scrabble clubs, Neville did it all. I couldn't see how he'd had any extra time to become a master magician, but then that's just who Neville was. 
He wasn't just lauded, he was loved. The same sentiments kept surfacing through all the remarks, but one guy, a friend from high school, seemed to say it best. The thing about Neville was that you always came away from every encounter with him feeling you had been given a gift of some kind. I don't know how he did that. There was a murmur of agreement from the large crowd, and then the old friend went on to recount yet another of the seemingly endless acts of kindness Neville had bestowed. Any pressure I had felt about doing justice to his favorite trick rose exponentially as the service went on. Someone who was that amazing clearly deserved a top-notch performance, and I really wasn't convinced I was the guy to deliver it. Make no mistake, I bombed before plenty of times, but the idea of bombing at a funeral really offered its own tragic implications. To sum up, I wasn't in a good place. My only consolation was that my current situation, such as it was, was just slightly more positive than the guest of honor, but not by much. I followed the large crowd as they filed out of the sanctuary and down the narrow steps to the basement reception hall. As I entered the low-ceilinged room, I was delighted to discover that, with the exception of the several food-laden buffet tables, the room was filled wall-to-wall with tabletops. While there was a little standing room around the sides, the layout was designed force people to grab some food and sit down. I doubt it had been devised with my needs in mind, but I was nonetheless happy with the outcome. The thing about the trick, or actually the series of card tricks I was about to perform, was that I pretty much had to do it at a table. Either I could be seated or my spectators could be seated or we could all be seated but it wasn't something I could do with any great flexibility if I were standing and they were clustered around me, holding drinks or small plates of appetizers. I stood there for a long moment as the rest of the crowd oozed in around me. In a normal walk-around situation, I would have dived right in, finding a small group and starting to perform. Something, anything, that would quickly grab the attention of an intimate bunch of attendees. But that wasn't going to happen here. I had to wait for people to go through the buffet line, get some food, and then sit down, which meant, basically, I had more time to think and more time to worry and more time to squirm. Finally, one of the tables filled up, and I stepped forward. I was feeling like an amateur skydiver about to jump for the first time. I was not at all certain I had packed my parachute properly. I took a deep breath, approached the table, and jumped in, head first. Sorry to interrupt, but Sue asked me to go around and perform Neville's favorite magic trick for folks. Would you like to see it? They agreed to the proposition, and I was off and running. And I kept running for the next hour, from table to table, one right after the other. There was no need to reset. When I'd finished at one table, I just grabbed the cards and moved on to the next group. The time sailed by like a slow-motion blur, and boy, did I work. In order to pull off the trick that cannot be explained, I had to be completely present and in the moment. Every single 
moment. And the truly amazing thing was, it was paying off. It's like the stars had aligned in my favor. I'd get to a new table, set up a new situation, pick a card, think of a card, give me a number between 1 and 20. I never knew until I said it just what the setup might be. And moments later, I'd floor them with a trick which used that information to great effect. It was weird. Really weird. And understand this. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in unseen hands from the beyond reaching down and orchestrating events. But I couldn't deny what was happening. I was doing Neville's favorite trick, the trick that cannot be explained at his funeral, and it was working virtually every time. Was I in the midst of some actual, true, paranormal experience? Were all my years of debunking coming back to literally haunt me? Was this some sort of cosmic comeuppance? The universe shaking a finger at me, saying, Hey, remember everything you thought you knew? Well, buddy, think again. Was that what was happening? To say I was spooked might be an understatement. I tried to reassure myself by imagining what Uncle Harry would be saying in this situation. You make your own luck, Eli, that's all this is. This is not supernatural. This is not the ghost of Neville reaching out to you from the beyond, guiding your hand, stacking the deck, and making things, amazing things happen. This is just you, a good magician with solid skills, who has learned the difficult art of how to take advantage of a situation and make miracles out of it. I wanted to believe that. I wanted to believe I was just that good. Of course, I knew I wasn't. I mean, I'm pretty good. I'm better than the average guy off the street. But this level? This number of miracles, one after another, I was supposed to actually believe that somehow I was doing that? That seemed at best unlikely. To say I was feeling mixed emotions would be an understatement. I moved steadily and methodically from table to table, each time introducing myself with the same pre-planned introduction. Sorry to disturb you, but Sue asked me to perform Neville's favorite card trick for you, never really knowing what I was going to do after that sentence. Yet somehow, I always seemed to know. Every time, the next sentence came to me. It was never the same sentence. I was always entirely in the moment. And amazing things happened, one after another. I began to feel like the bishop in the movie Caddyshack, who in the midst of a tremendous rainy downpour hits amazing golf shots again and again. At one point he says something like, I'm having the greatest game of my life. And then he misses a shot and swears to the heavens. A moment later, he's struck down by a bolt of lightning. I was waiting for that moment to happen to me. When would lightning strike me down? The tables for the reception were arranged in a large circle with another circle of tables within that circle. In the center was a lone table, which was reserved for the widow, 
where she was seated with what appeared to be close friends and relatives. I had started the gig on the large outer circle, then moved to the smaller inner circle. My last table was literally the last table in the center of the room. I introduced myself to Sue, offering condolences and thanking her for the chance to perform Neville's favorite trick one last time. Oh, thank you, Eli, Sue said, smiling broadly. She was a tiny woman with beautiful, stark white hair. She grabbed my hand and squeezed it. Neville would have been so pleased. It's been my honor, I said, and I really meant it. This had been a day like no other. Do the trick for us, someone said from the other side of the table. I looked down at Sue and she nodded. I would love to see it again, she said quietly. So I launched into the unknown one final time. Was it the best version that afternoon? Maybe not, but it was darn good. I used two volunteers. One had chosen a card which had appeared with a simple cut in the middle of the deck, while the other's card was found all by itself in the empty card box. The table applauded at the conclusion, and I looked down at Sue, who was smiling up at me. Oh, Eli, that was wonderful, she said. But that's not Neville's trick. I was sure I hadn't heard her correctly. Excuse me? That's not Neville's trick, she repeated. Yes, I know it's different every time, I began, but Sue cut me off. No, it was always the same, always exactly the same. She turned to an older gentleman on her right. George, you know how the trick goes, don't you? I should say I do, he said with a grim chuckle. Neville did it every chance he got. I must have seen it a thousand times. He put his hand out, and I surrendered the cards, not sure what I had done wrong or where this was headed. George quickly counted out a few cards and then spread the small packet face up for a guest across the table. Irene, I want you to pick one of these cards. Don't tell me what you picked, though. Have you picked one? The woman nodded, and George began to deal out the cards. Into three piles of seven cards each, all face up. I'm sure my expression must have reflected, at least to a degree, the turmoil I was suddenly feeling. This guy was doing the 21 card trick, the simplest, most common trick on the planet. It was the go to routine for virtually any layperson who insisted on performing a trick for me after learning I was a magician. This was Neville's favorite trick? I'm sorry, I said as I looked down at Sue. I'm sure my utter confusion was evident in my voice. I thought Neville's favorite trick was the trick that cannot be explained. Oh, it was, she agreed, nodding along. Anytime I'd ask him how it was done, Neville always said the same thing. Honey, it's complicated. It's a math thing. It's one of those tricks I just can't explain. So that's what we always called it, the trick I can't explain. I was suddenly hit with a hard punch of clarity right to the face. I must have misheard her on the phone. Had I asked a follow-up question, any follow-up question, I surely would have quickly realized the trick 
she was describing. However, I'd gone down a completely different and much more agonizing road altogether. I suddenly felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I looked down as George continued through the simple steps that always brought the 21 card trick to its inevitable and satisfying conclusion. He successfully revealed Irene's chosen card and was greeted by polite applause by the rest of his table mates. Still feeling numb, I collected my cards and once again offered the widow my heartfelt condolences. I then stepped away from the table and scanned the room. I knew they had a buffet, but I had a more pressing question. Was there also a bar of some kind? I didn't mean to shut the place down. It just worked out that way. Turns out there was no bar. It was a church basement, after all. But there was still some food left on the buffet. Although I was emotionally and physically spent from performing the trick that cannot be explained for over an hour, I was also hungry. So I grabbed the last of the sliced ham sandwiches and the remaining scoop of potato salad, speared a couple of recalcitrant pickles and a dollop of something that looked like a lime jello salad, and then I sat down, hard, at the first chair I found. The crowd had thinned out to just a trickle of people, and even these stragglers looked like they were about to head out, but I wasn't ready to go. I needed a few minutes to process what had just happened. I was deeply mired in my thoughts when I felt a presence next to me. It was George, the fellow at Sue's table, who had performed Neville's actual favorite card trick. He slid effortlessly into the chair next to me. Funerals, huh? he finally said. You got that right, I agreed. Did you know him? Neville? I shook my head, but judging by his eulogies, he was a heck of a guy. That he was. We sat in silence for a few moments longer. I could see some of the catering staff starting to eye us. I think they were ready to go home and wanted us to do the same. That was a great card trick you did, George finally said. Neville would have loved it. Yours was swell as well, I said. George shrugged. I saw him do that darn thing so many times I could probably do it in my sleep. That was the thing about Neville. You hung around him enough, you just picked things up by osmosis. You didn't even realize it at the time, but you'd look back and realize he'd given you this gift, and you weren't even aware when it happened. Know what I mean? I looked over at George and thought about the preceding four days, about the lesson I'd had with Harry and all the practicing, and then performing that trick, that impossible trick, at table after table and not just getting through it, but really succeeding with it. Yeah, I think I do, I said. Neville was one hack of a good magician. George and I talked about Neville for another hour, while the catering staff packed away all their gear. We were still chatting about him long after they'd left. <laughs> A trick that cannot be explained. A fun little story. It really is. I think Eli learned some some good lessons there, and I learned some good lessons because the the version of the trick that cannot be explained that I knew, and I I am not a magician, but I 
I know how some tricks work. And the research I had done on it said, well, here's Di Vernon talking about it. And then not a lot of other stuff is written on it. And then uh, Eric Mead had a book called Tangled Web, and he had a whole chapter on it. And the way Eric Mead does it is what Eli does in the story. It is you use every single trick you have in your quiver as a magician to make something amazing happen with the deck of cards, which is why it's sort of uh, it's an intimidating trick. And that's yeah. what, what happens is uh, Eli is uh, intimidated. Did you know anything about this trick before that story and before we talked to Larry Haas? You know, I certainly knew the name of the trick before, and I I had seen the trick, but didn't connect the dots. So I, I having been around Eugene enough, uh, Eugene Berger enough, I had seen versions of this, but didn't know. Oh, that's the trick that cannot be. I knew that it, a trick named the trick that cannot be explained existed. I didn't know what it was, and I had seen it several times before I realized. Oh, that's what. That's the trick that cannot be explained. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it, um, it, I, not being a magician uh, or writing a book about a magician, I just knew what I knew. And um, in hindsight, of course, it all became clear as we talked to Larry because he's so smart and so, uh, uh, you know, had was so good friends with such good friends with Eugene that um, all of this became much clearer to me as we chatted with him. Yes, it was a great conversation, which kicked off with Larry giving us a little bit of history on the trick that cannot be explained. I didn't do a ton of research on the trick, as we'll discuss, but you know more about it than I do. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the history of this trick? Absolutely. So it appears, you know, historical records are somewhat difficult, but it appears that the very first kind of performances of this basic effect were in the late 1930s by the great Canadian creator, Stuart James. Uh, he, at that point, was performing it. He said he performed it. People saw him perform it. And basically, to be clear, the basic effect they saw is that Stuart James wrote down a prediction and then uh, the cards were spread out. The participants selected a card and that card matched the prediction. And over all the years of the trick that can't be explained, there've been some subtle kind of ins and outs, small variations, but for the most part, that is the effect. A prediction is made either uh, openly or secretly. The participant selects a card and then they the card they've selected is matches the prediction. So after Stuart James, the first appearance of this kind of effect in print is in 1942 in a, in a small book, Cut the Cards by Martin Gardner. Uh, he includes a trick by Joe Berg called A Miracle Maybe. <laughs> and uh, what Joe Berg's uh, a great Chicago magician uh, on, then moved on to California. What he does is he has the participants select a card put it back in the deck, and then the cards are spread and point to it. And that's pretty darn close to the effect. So I think it's important to, to recognize that in this history. But of course, the big landmark of the big watershed moment is exactly what you wrote in the story, John, and that is Di Vernon's The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. That's where it gets its title in 1960 in the more inner secrets of card magic. And uh, that's the classic write-up. 
And uh, since then, it's like the holy grail of card magic because it seems so miraculous. And when it's done well, it is a miracle. Yeah, it really is. That was where I found it, was uh, that write-up of it, which is not particularly in-depth, really, describing how it's done. And so I then turned to Eric Mead, who had written a whole chapter about it in his book, Tangled Web. And that's where I came across the term jazz magic and his approach, which is, let's say, much more loosey-goosey than the version we'll talk about that Eugene Berger did. And I should say, Larry, Jim is a student of Eugene Berger. I was lucky enough to spend a weekend with him here in Minneapolis. He is the one of the two prototypes for Uncle Harry. Uncle Harry is a combination of Eugene and Jay Marshall. That's so nice. I just want to say that is so nice. <laughs> yes. Uh he's and he's been he has been mentioned, if not on every episode, nearly on every episode. And he's sort of the patron saint of this podcast because we keep keep coming back to his principles as we're talking about almost anything in magic. We keep coming back to that. So you wrote for him his version of The Trick That Cannot Be Explained. Do you want to just give us a little background? on? I know there were two final books that he had you working on in secret. What was that process? Yes, I'm I'm happy to. Uh, I'll condense it very quickly. Uh, Back in 2010, Eugene asked if I would write two books that would share all of his unpublished material after he had passed away. He knew he had created many, many, many great pieces of magic that he didn't want to explain because, as he said, Larry, people are still paying me to perform these things. (laughs) And so he didn't want to share them while he was alive, but he didn't want them lost to time. And so Eugene and I were such good friends for so long. And I, in some sense, I've though I'm a full-time magician, I'm a student of his magic. And so he asked me to do this. So after he passed in 2017, I was back to work and I brought out the first one in 2019, Eugene Berger from beyond. And then in 2021, I brought out the second one, Eugene Berger, Final Secrets. And relevant to our conversation, from the very beginning in 2010, Eugene insisted that his work on the trick that cannot be explained would be the final chapter in the final book. It was so important to him that he shared his work on this. Uh, Having seen him perform uh, that effect, the last time he was here in Minnesota, I, of course, was blown away by it every time I saw him do it. But why do you think Eugene was so taken with this effect? He said, and I have this quote by him, the Vernon trick, this I'm quoting from Eugene, this was from a magic lecture in 2011. The Vernon trick that cannot be explained is my absolutely favorite card trick of all time. Wow. wow. It is as close to real magic as it gets. And I believe, Jim, that that was part of it. He always wanted to borrow a deck if he could. He would do it with his own deck, but he knew it wasn't as strong as then if he borrowed a deck. And then he creates a miracle with it. And I think that part of it, that it was so strong with a borrowed deck, then people were so astonished. But, Jim, I think there was also one other part. I came to realize this as I was writing up this chapter of the books after Eugene had passed. It was Eugene's friendship piece. Ah. And and I what I mean by that is let's think about what happens. Uh, the, uh, Eugene borrows a deck. The deck is fairly mixed. 
the a par par participant uh, selects a card and Eugene then reveals that it matches the card he had set aside for his participant earlier. And the meaning of that, the meaning of that is that Eugene and the participant were profoundly magically connected. Mm. And that meaning, I think, gave Eugene uh, thrills to the core in every performance. It isn't just that our cards matched. It's that we have a connection. And uh, Eugene was such a people person. I, th I think that's part of it. We had Michael Close on last season, and he was talking about the difference between his performance style and Eugene when it came to restaurant magic. And and Mike was talking about he liked to stand so he could change his positioning if he needed to, depending on whether or not he had a difficult person on either side of him. Whereas Eugene insisted on sitting and becoming part of the group. And I think that's a part of the secret of, of his success was that's what he wanted to do was not stand apart, but be part of you. Absolutely, uh, John. A quick story on this. Uh, Eugene told me he had learned that higher secret of close-up magic from the great Don Allen, who huh. he knew as a teenager and took lessons from as a teenager and, of course, uh, knew him all the way through his life. And Don said to Eugene, always sit at the table. That way you're part of the group, not standing up out of the group. And I will just tell you both, for many years, I, I didn't understand that. And I'm performing my close-up magic standing up like Mike, who, by the way, is a, an extraordinary worker, right? An extraordinary magician. But I was standing up and doing this. And then one day, uh, suddenly it like dropped from the sky. And I realized Eugene was right for me. For me as a performer, I needed to sit there and become part of the family, mm -hmm. part of the family at the table. And I will say... It's one of the secrets that made him so successful with the trick that cannot be explained. Having experienced with him sitting in, in a restaurant, he was here for a program we used to put on called Sunday Night Magic. And uh, he came in and spent the weekend with us. And just sitting at that restaurant table with him as he did the trick after trick for us and for people who stopped by, that was his milieu, was just hanging out around the table. He felt right at home, I think. I agree with you. That was his superpower, his place of extraordinary power. He was great standing up. And I, you know, he and I made seance shows together and all of that. But I, so I've, you know, seen Eugene in every context, but I absolutely do think sitting up close up at, at a table in a restaurant, perhaps that it was his finest venue. Yeah. yeah. You know, as I as we mentioned before we got on the air, the research I did for this story was reading about Di Vernon and uh, then reading uh, Eric Mead's piece. And that was the structure, which was Eli has to learn this jazz magic uh, in a matter of a couple of days and goes in and is terrified and then learns, has a very good experience doing it. If I had read your book, uh, there would be no short story because the way <laughs> that it's done by Eugene is, although complicated, you know, it's not. For the faint of heart, um, he has built-in outs and he has a, a process. Have you, since the book's come out, had any conversations with magicians who have gone down the Eugene path and, and their response to how he did it and, and how it's working for them? 
Yes, I, I really have. I mean, as you might imagine, this was one of Eugene's longest sought secrets. Yeah. I mean, magicians have been writing me since they'd heard of the book projects, like, will that be there? And I'm like, last chapter, last book. And, and so it's come out. And so many people have been experimenting with it. And I hear that they're experimenting with it. And then I don't hear from them again. And I think what that might indicate, I don't know, but I think what that might indicate is that this is a tall mountain. That's the metaphor I use in the book. And it's really true. I'm, uh, my research into Eugene's past in history shows me that he, he was doing this on a regular, almost daily basis since the early 1980s. And so, I mean, what, the reason it was a miracle in Eugene's hands is because this was his masterwork that he'd been working on for so long. And I, I think, uh, you know, your, your magician, your story, had he known like how tall the mountain was, might have just said, I'll do something else instead. But <laughs> because, um, and maybe this is a useful way of both of you to kind of talk about it, because I really believe everything in the world of magic, every all the methods of magic are possible to use with this piece of magic. You can use a device, uh, you know, some kind of mechanical device. You can use you can use mathematics with this. You can use a sleight of hand. You can use, uh, and of course, it depends upon psychology. And so, well, everything's fair game. So the more you know about magic methods, the more you have to draw on as you're creating the miracle. And I think that's part of why this feels so much like the Holy Grail. Uh, do I have enough arrows in my quiver to attempt this. Because without all those arrows in the quiver, it's quite likely you'll shoot your arrow and be like, well, that didn't really turn out very well, or that was obvious. So I think that's what makes this so sought after by magicians, because they see how much work it will involve. Well, that's in true. I mean, I, I, I am not a magician. I can do one trick. But in going through your write-up of how he does it and looking at those wonderful videos, there is really a path. And he's, you know, he's made room for miracles if they happen, but you're, you're never really adrift if you just follow what he said. It, there might be a lot of steps involved, but he's always, he, un, unlike what Eric Mead was writing about, which terrified me because, I mean, what Eric was saying was, uh, it's, it's good with two decks and just go in and start shuffling stuff and, and just see what happens and use your skills, which is great if you have skills. But I think the way Eugene did it, although difficult, is such a straight line that it's it's actually much more reassuring and it's it's not jazz it's uh you can go off and play a solo if it happens but you always have a, a home base that you're headed toward yes the metaphor i used is not jazz it's chess and, mm -hmm. and that is i believe the correct metaphor for what eugene was doing he always got to checkmate now he felt it was his obligation as a professional magician to get to checkmate so he knew where he was heading it was a job a Eugene's task as a professional magician to get to checkmate so he knew where he was heading when the participants didn't and he had eliminated the weaker solutions so part of it is Eugene's uh, thing is as you say there is a, there are a couple of different paths and every one of them was strong he isn't really jazzing and hoping not that eric is but um there is a path and if you repeat and practice and perform it over and over and over again the path will imprint itself on you and you can do this too 
And I think that for those people who are not magicians listening to this, without giving away a whole lot, there are uh, kind of two ways to do this. One is simply jazz. You uh, are trying to locate a card and you're going to use whatever uh, abilities you have or have learned as a magician to get where you want to go. And, uh, and you will take whatever out you can get. And sometimes it's going to be incredible. And sometimes it's going to be, okay, yeah, we did it. With Eugene's method, all of that jazz goes away and you are on a mission to get where you want to go. And there are many ways that he will stop and say, okay, I'm there. And all of them are miraculous to an audience, especially... I think an audience of magicians. I think this trick plays to magicians in a way that it might not play to lay people because lay people expect a certain amount of miracle to happen. Uh, magicians think they know what's going on and Eugene could just blow us away by how he got where he wanted to go. And it was incredible, I think. Yeah, one of Eugene's favorite lines when performing this, fair and the person would say fair and he'd go it was fair it is fair i mean he would he would constantly because it was he wouldn't ask that question unless the choice that had just been made was fair and so that is true jim i think it's true that magicians had a certain kind of ride with this where they felt everything was fair and magicians are especially uh, looking for unfair <laughs> right we're an audience i i, I suppose an audience is too they're trying to follow along and puzzle it out. But they're not, uh, I think, as blown away by this as some magicians are who are like, what just happened here? Because I, I know I so much of what's going on. And yet here I am uh, bamboozled and flabbergasted when it ends. You know what? Yes. I mean, this is such a rich conversation. One thing, and it will help illuminate Eugene's insistence on chess, as oh, I'll say two things, as opposed to jazz. So Eugene explicitly said, I am not good at some of the stuff that goes along with what we might call the jazz version of this. He didn't feel confident, like he could succeed with some of those, we might say, cognitive processes. And, uh, and so he just created his own version that didn't rely on them. And so that's part, that's the first thing to say. It wasn't that uh, he chose the chess version rather than the jazz version because he wasn't 100% confident he could succeed. And the second thing, Eugene's highest value with all of his magic, card magic or other magic, does it have tremendous impact? That is the word that's at the heart of all of Eugene's choices. Will it have great impact? And I think he felt sometimes with the jazz version, it might not. It might only have okay impact, and that's right. not good enough. Right? Yeah. I mean, and 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 doesn't that? I think that comes from a real place of caring about his audience. Uh, that he absolutely wants to make sure that the people who are seeing him and the people who have hired him get a high level of performer and experience, rather than uh, an okay level, and that that's. I think led to so much of why Eugene is great. You know, Jim, I couldn't agree more. I think you've just said something that goes to the heart of Eugene's special qualities as a performer. Eugene would go home after working a show and he wouldn't ask himself, um, did that look good? Did the trick work? Did I fool them? Eugene would ask himself after every show, he's, 
what quality of relationship did I make with those people mm. tonight? Because Eugene knew that that was the pathway to his, for lack of a better word, business, that people felt great after they'd had an encounter with him. So Eugene was never showing magic to people. He was always playing magic with them. Yeah. And as you both know from having seen him, he always created the feeling this was play like you were in the playground with Eugene. Yeah. And who didn't want to be there? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when, so I had reached out to him after I read Spirit Theater and, you know, long before there was an Internet or anything like that, uh, I read the book. One of our uh, local magic shops uh, called me and said a book came in that you've been waiting for your entire life. You better come down. So when I read the book, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is all I've ever wanted in magic is to do this kind of work. And so I reached out to him. I just called information in Chicago and said, do you have a number for a Eugene Berger? And they did. And I called him and I said, I read your book. I love the show. I want to know who has the rights to it. And have you sold you know, the ability to perform this to one of the, and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm just a guy in uh, in Minnesota that would like to do this show, but I, I would like to, you know, find out how to do it with permission and or pay you money to do it. And he said to me, listen, I'm kind of busy. Can you call me in a week? And I said, sure. What what day? But call me on this day at this time. So I called him. A week later, phone answers. Hi, it's Jim Cunningham calling from Minnesota. Oh, Jim. Thanks for calling. Yes, I'm just going out to a, a dental appointment. Could you call me in a week? And I said, yeah, certainly. Later, he told me that was something he did to everybody that called, uh, wanting either him as a teacher or uh, something from him. He would, he would see, are you serious about this? And so in the third phone call, he finally said, well, let's talk about this and see how this might work. When I brought him and he was so generous. He just said, yes, you can do it. There's no working script. You're going to have to put that together, but I will help you. You come to Chicago and I will work with you to put together what you need. And then you'll fly me to Minneapolis and, and I'll help you set up the back end of the show. Uh, and you'll set up a lecture for me. And so that's what we did. And that's how generous the man was. He never asked for any kind of financial arrangement, nothing. It was just, yes, this is great. Let's do this. When he came to Minneapolis, and this is the point of this story, it's taken me a while to get there. I set up, I thought, well, you know, why don't I get some reporters in a room and let Eugene do some magic for them before I start talking about the show? So Eugene agreed to that. Sure, I'd love to. So we got three or four reporters in the room, all from the big newspapers in town. And Eugene starts to perform magic. And the first trick he does, I'm watching him entertain these people. And he has one of the reporters pick a card and lose it in the deck. And then he uh, cuts the deck and says, is this your card? And it's not. The guy says, no, that's not my card. And Eugene says, really? And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, here, here I have brought this man in to impress these people. And the very first trick, he has screwed up. And he hands the guy the deck and says, well, find your card. And the guy goes through the deck and goes, it's, it's not here. And Eugene says, well, we're going to have to have a seance. 
and he puts the deck down and he puts a little candle on it and he lights the candle, sets the thing down, you know, goes through this whole deal and they look in the deck, it's still not there. And Eugene blows the candle out, thinks for a second and says to the man, maybe you should try it. And he puts the deck in front of him and the candle and says to the man, light, light the candle. And the guy opens the matchbook and there behind the matches is the guy's signed card folded in quarters. It, it was the most miraculous thing up to that point that I had ever seen. How that card got there, folded up, it just completely fried me. And I knew a thing or two. So I wonder if that, as early as 86, if there was some sort of, this is how I'm going to play with this, the trick that cannot be explained. Because there were elements of that in there. Did you ask him about that after, Jim? Did you... Did you tell him you were freaked out? I might have told him I was terrified when you didn't find the right card. I thought, oh, my gosh, here we go. We're off to the races with the reporters. And they're going to say, yeah, he wasn't that good. Uh, He ended up completely, as you would imagine, dazzling all of them. And they wrote a terrific article uh, about him and about the show. And it was magical and terrific. And But I, I think I may have told him how terrified I was. And I think his response was something to the effect of, well, Jim, at these prices, I almost always get the right card. That is very funny. What a delightful story. And that was his version of uh, Matt Shulian's great card in the matchbox. When I met him in the early 90s, he was no longer doing that. He had other similar pieces he was doing. But it's great to know that in 86, you got to see him do it. Yeah. And this points us to another element of Eugene's work on the trick that can't be explained and 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 everyone's really and that is uh, what used to be called misdirection but which is properly called I think attention management ah. Eugene likes the best magicians makes sure they don't they don't go oh look away so I can do something what they do is they make sure that the audience's eyes are always where they want it to be from the beginning to the end. And Eugene, so he's like a, a he's like a film director directing attention throughout the entire performance piece so that when those secret moments are happening, they just completely drop from view. So attention management is an important part of this routine. And of course, uh, so many others in magic uh, because it's so key to the psychology of magic. You know, there's a couple other things that I think are mentioned in the book that uh, are important for this routine, but that I think he felt important everywhere. And I just want to get your thoughts on them. One is the use of acting. How did he feel about acting? So, yes, Eugene talked explicitly about acting. um, And it's something that I teach about as well. I'm a trained theater person. And so at the Magic and Mystery School, I'm always teaching about acting. But Eugene absolutely understood this. It's essential to act as though what was what is happening was always going to happen and that's easier said than done to act like everything you're saying is being said for the very first time and that the ending is ex- exactly what was intended from the beginning these are actually high level acting skills and i do think that's also part of what makes this such a tall mountain yeah, i i 100% agree with you because it, it, the Without giving anything away, you can see, as the magician, a miracle right there, and then it's shuffled away. And and that 
to me would be the hardest. It wouldn't be the other end of the spectrum acting wise. It would be the, there it is. Oh, dang it. It just went by me. Uh, that would be impossible for me to. Uh, you know, there's a perfect acting moment. Another acting moment, really, this is to come back to John's question too. Eugene always said one of his very famous sayings, which lives in my head, thinking kills magic. Mm. So if the audience perceives that you're thinking, show's over. Because now they have a way that uh, this is accomplished through your thinking, as opposed to no way. There's yeah. no way that could have happened. So one has to act like you're not thinking or not caring when you are thinking and caring. Right. Yeah. But he also would be, based on the videos of him, because you have a lot of wonderful videos uh, attached to that book, he is just as delighted as the audience at the end. Yes. You know, that's such a good point, John, because it tells us something about Eugene's really special character as a performer. It was never like, look at me, look at me, gotcha. Here I am, big, powerful magician. It was always for him, wow, look at what just happened for us. He was part of the play, even though, you know, even though everyone was giving him credit for it, he could be astonished too. He would be astonished. Wow, he'd go, wow. And that points us to another element of, of this piece for him, which is that everyone is a participant and he's he is not going to perform this piece for people who are going to challenge him who or who aren't going to play. They're not going to get to see that show. Eugene's just going to sit there. He's picking, he's selecting the people who are going to get to witness this very, very carefully. Vernon had a, a, a very important statement, be a good general. And mm. what I take Vernon to mean is always perform from the high ground, not from the low ground with some jerk who's trying to bust you. And Eugene was really, really good at seeing is do I have the high ground here? Can I succeed with this piece? Is this a person that will participate with me in play? These are the higher secrets, I think, of the trick that cannot be explained. You know, we we had Mac King on last episode, uh, and it's just sort of in passing, he started talking about the, the number of times there's people on stage with him during his act, and that there's only about 10 minutes where he's alone on stage. And he talked about how the first five minutes he's uh, doing his famous rope trick. And he explained to us that during that five minutes, he is picking the three people who will be on stage. He is watching the reactions of the crowd and he's deciding who they're going to be, which has, I think we pointed out at the time, was sort of a masterclass in how to do that. It was so well thought out. But that reminds me, and Jim, I might, you might be thinking of this as well. When we were with Eugene uh, at dinner uh, at the hotel, someone stopped by the table and we asked them to sit down because they were part of the hotel. And Eugene did uh, I don't remember exactly what he did for him, but the response was one that I've never seen before, which was almost explosive anger yeah. at the result of the trick. And Eugene was not a big guy, and this was a big guy, and Eugene had no problem with it. He had no problem. You know, he let the guy be angry. He didn't fuel it. He didn't stomp on it. He just let what was going to happen happen. As Jim and I are sitting there thinking, uh, if he comes across the table at Eugene, we've got a 
<laughs> we're gonna have to do something and you know we're not those kind of guys but that was an experience where i just saw eugene's complete control of the moment yes now i i do have to ask what was it just that the person was angry about the fact that this impossible thing had happened they didn't understand yeah yes, yes. They were it, they were so blown away that it, they went from you know uh, confusion to immediate anger over the fact that they were that deeply fooled uh, and it just it was a crazy reaction. I've seen it happen actually. Um, when I first started performing magic uh, almost thirty years ago now, I was a volu- I was volunteering in hospitals and uh, you know so I was going I, I was working as a volunteer and I was you know, being ushered into patient rooms. And I distinctly remember performing a miracle at the bedside of a little girl and she squealed with delight. And the mother looked at me like I was the work of the devil. And she said, how did you do that? And she was so upset because of this. So in the real world, magicians never have that reaction. We love magic. But in the real world, that reaction can come up. Though I've never seen it uh, with Eugene because he's always so playful, but I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jim gave us a little history of his first encounters with Eugene. How did you connect with him and and how did you get to the enviable position of the keeper of the secrets and the one that he trusted to pass them on? Yeah. Let me just start there. Such an unbelievable honor. I felt so honored to have been entrusted by Eugene uh, with the beautiful task of bringing his unpublished secrets to the world. Now, quick aside on that, you know, there there were some long, hard nights there because as it's a tall mountain to climb to perform these, it's a taller mountain to explain them so everyone can understand. And it was a 12-year project. I worked on that project for just shy of 12 years. So, you know, I just kept after it and I, I, I felt Eugene's spirit with me, you know, you can do it, Larry, or go back and rewrite that chapter again or whatever, because I I wanted to honor my teacher. I really was going to spare no effort to honor him. Now, how we met was really interesting. I was a young philosophy professor, uh, an assistant professor of philosophy. That's when I discovered magic as an adult, not as a youngster. And I was spending my summers in Chicago and I went to Jay Marshall's great shop, Magic Incorporated. And uh, Bruce Bernstein, a very, very clever creator of magic in Chicago, said to me, you're a philosopher, you need this book. And he handed me one of Eugene's books, the book called Intimate Power. And I did need that book. Hmm. Uh, I read that book that night three times. And since I was in Chicago, you know, I had the audacity to meet him and take my family to go see him work at Biggs. And then we discovered that my wife is a philosopher, too, and I'm a philosopher and Eugene was a philosopher. And suddenly we had all of these grounds of connection through philosophy and Chicago. And one thing led to another. And every time we were in the city, we would get together with Eugene and Then I brought him to my colleges many, many, many times, and he folded me into the Magic and Mystery School as as a faculty member and the associate dean there. So Eugene and I spent so many times together. We made shows and lectures together, and I guess that says he trusted me. You know, he learned he could trust me, that I wasn't going to fail to deliver. And so then when the questions of his posthumous writings emerged. I guess he thought of me and by God, those books are done. 
Yeah, and what when you that's the thing about Eugene here. Uh, here he is in 2010. How old would he have been in 2010? So uh, he let's see, he died in 17 at the age of 78. So he was 71. 71. Not young, but not old either. I mean, he was at the height of his powers at that point. Yes. Uh, and he has the foresight to identify somebody and say, hey, when I'm dead, I want you to, here's a whole bunch of material that I'm not willing to part with while I'm still working. But after I leave, I want this to be part of the Magic Fraternities Library. Think of the foresight there and the kindness there and the generosity there. Uh, it's amazing to me. It is. He was that kind of person. He, of well, two parts to this, his heart had always been broken when the great Bert Allerton got sick in the writing of his book, The Close-Up Magician, and Bert couldn't finish. Robert Parrish in Chicago had to try and finish it from notes. And yet that always broke his heart. He, because Bert Allerton was a great hero and his work is lost forever. And Eugene, going all the way back to the mid-1980s, said, I do not want that to happen to me. So that's part of it. But it wasn't only a personal thing that his work would be in print. He actually really wanted magicians to have it yeah. because he was a teacher. He wanted people to know what he had done so they could do it too after he was gone. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what a guy. Absolutely. What a guy. Yeah. You know, he would always, not always, but most often would finish with this line. That's all I know. That's that all would be I the, know. That's all I know. After he had completely, you know, taken the world out from underneath you and you're falling in free fall uh, to the ground, he would say, that's all I know. And clearly that isn't all he knows, but it, it was a clear indicator to everybody. I'm done now. Yes. I'm done performing. Um, what, you're, you put your finger on a really a, a powerful line in Eugene's work. And it's one that people often don't realize uh, you know, he would be at the table, but he was always a good general. And Eugene never performed too long. I mean, never. He always erred on the side of less. And in fact, Eugene talked very clearly to our students at the Mystery School. It's either a one-trick show, a three-trick show, and that's it if you're not getting paid. <laughs> if you're getting paid, you're going to do more. But if you're not getting paid, it's a one-trick show or a three-trick show. And then you know, at a dinner table with people's jaws hanging down, he had to come up with a way to close it without hurting people. And as you said, that was the line he used. I've heard him use it 150 times if I've yeah. heard it once. That's all I know. And the cards are in the box. He hands them back. And it's so gentlemanly and yep. elegant. It's, it's a very polite way to say, don't ask for more. I'm not opening the door to more. And it, it ties into my next question, which is, it's something I saw him do, and I saw Max Maven do it. And if the really best performers, and this is even with a stand-up comedian, his ability to say nothing, to be silent, to wait, that's a skill that I think can only be learned in the trenches, but is so powerful the way he handled it. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about Max because no discussion of the trick that cannot be explained would ever be complete without acknowledging Eugene's teacher, 
which was the great Max Maven of blessed memory who just recently passed away. Max was absolutely the master of this routine. He could do it in so many different ways. Max was such a genius. And uh, Eugene Freely said over and over that Max taught him everything he, Eugene, knew about this piece. And uh, Max Maven is appropriate to bring up here because of another reason very frequently, Eugene would share with our students, coming back to your point, John, something that Max frequently said. Magicians would say to Max, what's one thing magicians can do to be better? And Max would pause and say, slow down. And Max would develop that thought. Magicians are too much of a hurry. The beats don't land. They sound like a used car salesman as they're rattling along to get to the end of the trick. And that's not a performance, really. That's like survival. <laughs> and Max and Eugene both, and uh, hopefully me through learning, knows how to pause and let the impact set in along the way. Tell us your own experience, Jim, and how you, because you're able to do that on stage too, and particularly during your show, take those silences. And I, I only, like I said, I do one card trick, I do wave, uh, and I've gotten pretty good at not racing through it, but I still feel like I'm doing it too fast. I, I, I think because the book that brought me to Eugene was called Spirit Theater, that's why it resonated with me, because I am flat out not a magician. I know just enough to be stupid. And uh, Eugene, in that book, uh, created a piece of theater. And that I could wrap my head around. A, a piece of theater, yes, I've been doing that, that I get. So it's a matter of learning what I need to produce a piece of theater that would um, amaze and astonish and uh, give joy to the people who are in the crowd. And so any silence or pause that I have comes not from any kind of magical thinking, because I don't have much of that. It comes from the other side. It comes from having done theater for a while and knowing the power in taking a pause and letting an audience either catch up to you or think they're one ahead of you when you're two ahead of them or whatever it's going to be. Uh, but it, it it's all about theater for me. And that book uh, sort of opened the door to me wanting to perform magic because I really don't. I really don't. I, I love to watch magic. I will seek it out. I will spend hours watching stuff on YouTube. I will go to magic shows if there's one near me. If I'm in Vegas, I'll see as many as I can. I don't want to perform it because it is just so darn nerve wracking if you don't have, as Larry said, a lot of arrows in your quiver. And I simply don't. I, I know, you know, I know a lot of stuff, but I'm these hands don't do any of the things that I'm that I that I know in my head. I can't make my hands do that. And I'm not willing to spend the time to learn those things. I want to know just what I need to know to do what I need to do. Well, Jim, I would say you've really put your finger on something very essential about the silences and the pauses. In theater, you have to learn how to do that. You have to do that for your actors, other actors to be able to interact with you. And while you have real emotions going on in your spirit. And so another way to look at the mag magic problem that Max points to is that many magicians, perhaps who go too fast, they haven't had the theatrical training required to deliver 
script like theatrical lines. And so they end up sounding like used car salesmen because they haven't had the training to know how to do it. Right. And uh, Eugene had enough training. He had enough training to know how to pause and let things happen in those spaces. Yeah. And see, I think that that is a, a little bit of the crux of the biscuit for me is that I understand that portion of it because that's what I do. You know, that's what I do for a living. So I get that part of it. And um, I the other part of mystifying somebody has a lot to do with what you have spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours alone at your kitchen table uh, working through. And you spend so much time getting that part of it right, the slight or the actual misdirection or attention management, that by the time you get to perform it, I don't think you, I, I think sometimes the disconnect is I didn't spend any time working on a, a frame or a script or a, it, it just doesn't seem necessary. I can do this thing now and amaze you. And and sometimes that works. But in Eugene's case, almost always, there was a great frame that surrounded what he was doing. So And, and that gave him a, a context. It gave him a, it, all of it. it and, and that's why his magic or, you know, great magician's magic uh, is that way because they have spent time figuring out the other side of the equation. It's not just the slight. In fact, it's almost never the slight. It's the rest of it. Yeah, I, I've got a good friend, a great theatrical magician named Max Howard, who says, and I quote, magic is everything other than the trick. Uh -huh. You know, and that's exactly on this point. So learning a method or several is never sufficient for a magical experience. It has to have all of the theatrical work and scripting and framing, all the acting, all the things you're talking about for it to be experienced uh, as magical in the way that like Eugene could do. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, things I'm thinking, having heard Jim's story about, because I've heard Jim say over and over, I'm not a magician, I'm not a magician. And I feel like that in this podcast, I'm the one who's allowed to say I'm not a magician because Jim actually does a show that has some magic in it. But years ago, when I was starting to research the Eli Marks series, and I I knew some magicians, but I didn't know any magic. And I went to, I believe it was a genie convention and I was in the dealer's room and uh, I saw Cosmo and I'd been subscribing to his DVDs. So I knew Cosmo and I went up to tell him how helpful they were. And he was very, you know, jovial. And he said, so you're a magician? And I said, no. And he said, so are you a dealer? No. Do you create magic? No. Uh, then what are you doing here? <laughs> um, and I didn't have the uh, the phrase that uh, I've used ever since and when I heard it from Eugene, which is there are many rooms in the house of magic and I'm just in a different room than you guys, but we're all in the house uh, and you can move from room to room. And that philosophy of his is peppered throughout all the Eli Marks books about there's no wrong room to be in in the house of magic. And uh, that's something that a legacy of Eugene's that will stick with me forever. Is there something, the, Larry, that you're thinking of that will is really his legacy to the world of magic? I, that is absolutely one important part of it. You know, so much of magic, I, I take it, uh, in the 1970s and 80s, which you see in the literature from that time, is all about, you know, my muscles, my magic muscles are bigger than your magic muscles. And it's like, and, and it's like the mark of a great magician is how hard your slight is 
forget about whether you've actually astonished people when you've done it, you know, and Eugene was not alone, but he was part, I think, of a transitional moment in magic when Eugene and others stood up and said, it's not about how big your slight is. It's whether or not you've astonished people when you perform. That's the measure of a magician, yeah. not how hard your slate is. And I, I do think this was a transformational moment. Uh, Darren Brown writes about uh, having dinner with, at a table with Eugene one night and suddenly realizing, oh my God, magic could be this rather than here are all my hard slights. And yeah. This, this was a corrective to, I think, a kind of slight mania that had gone on in the middle of the century, and for, for good, very good reasons. It's not that sleight of hand and methods aren't important. As Eugene always said, they're essential. They're just not sufficient. That's what he says in Intimate Power. Good methods are essential. They're just not sufficient. The presentation, the frame, the audience feeling, all of that is the higher secrets above and beyond the method. For Eugene, the methods are here, they're great, they're creative, they're wonderful. But there's at least two higher levels to the work of creating something that feels magical. And his insights about this, I'll, I'll give you one very concrete example, but his insights about this were transformational for many, many magicians. And uh, Eugene is, I think, really the magician who in insisted that his frames were going to refer to a larger human context beyond the props. You know, Eugene uh, frequently joked about adventures of the props in the magician's hands. Mm -hmm. And when you go back and watch magic videos from the 70s and 80s, such as they were, here are my cups, here are my cards, here are my jacks and queens and kings. And it's all self-referential. It's just constantly in this internal world of toys and props. And Eugene was really the strongest voice to say, no, magic is about human life. Tricks are about the props. So let's talk about the kinds of things adults like to hear about. At least, if nothing else, this was Eugene's biggest inspiration to me. Make sure that none of my tricks are about the stinking props. Make sure that they refer to human life and give insights into the human condition. And uh, he certainly did that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think of uh, his card warp, his um, uh, torn and restored thread, all of those. Yeah, I mean, they all had a, uh, it wasn't at all about what's in his hands. It was what's going on in my mind as I'm watching this uh, and listening to him tell those stories. Um, that was his part of his true genius. The other thing that I always reference uh, even when I'm about to go on stage is Eugene's advice don't make the audience member the stooge of your show make them the star of your show and that's a really valuable piece of advice that i received as a fairly young performer yeah. that has helped me chart a path that's i mean obviously there are times when you have to take some sort of action to control what's going on but more often than not because of that little piece of information i am able to celebrate with somebody on stage rather than make them my prop, my movie. Yeah, you, you, that's another insight Eugene brought to the game in the early 1980s. Uh, before Eugene, there weren't a lot of many people really calling out audience abuse acts. Right. And Eugene started to do that in the 1980s. And, you know, it, it he did make a difference. He and others who came along. Now, Eugene always said, 
there is, because the House of Magic has many rooms, there is a place for a highly skilled performer to do that kind of Don Rickles work. Right. And Tom Mullica is absolutely one of them. Tom Mullica could absolutely do that and get away with it. But most lesser performers, less experienced performers can't do that. So uh, there has been a corrective. He is a voice in that. And it's consistent with all the other things about audience participation and involvement and relationship. Uh, we're really at the at the heart of some of Eugene's most special qualities. Is there, looking back, having, because you now, you probably know his repertoire better than anyone, is there one of his routines that is your favorite and why does it stand out for you? Hmm. Wow. There are several. I'm not going to go down the list. But I will mention a piece called Greed. And it is published, it was revealed in Eugene Berger from beyond the first of the two books. And one reason I'm so fond of this routine is it's a highly artistic piece of magic that Eugene wrote relatively late in his career, late in his life and late in his career. And it's a good example of what we were talking about. Many performers, they do the bill change. They like borrow a bill, they turn it into a hundred and then they turn it back to a one and give it back which is a feel bad. Or some performers even borrow a wand, turn it into a hundred and pocket it, which is a feel worse. <laughs> but greed is Eugene's presentation for this classic effect. No money is borrowed. Instead, he's telling the story of a dream he had. And uh, he, in his dream, he woke up and he had four $1 bills. And then suddenly they turned into four $20 bills. Oh, he really liked that. And in the dream, I thought, what if they were hundreds? And he turned the bills again and they were back to ones. What happened here? Well, it was my greed, wasn't it? Mm. Wiser, I took those four $1 bills, put them away, and I woke up. Ah. And that's a masterpiece of scripting, of, of storytelling, of scripting, and like taking a piece that's so often done as a feel bad or something just for a joke. And he turned it into a life lesson for all of us. And greed is one of his very most special pieces, in my opinion. What do you think his, what do you think his legacy is? Well, I think Eugene's uh, legacy will last a long time because his impact on so many magicians of our time has been enormous. I think people will be saying Eugene's name for many, many decades, many, many decades. And I think part of it is there's so much more to magic than tricks and props. Magic's about life. That's what he said. This issue about giving rigorous care to the words we use when we perform. Eugene hated the word patter because it refers to like all those patter songs of Gilbert and Sullivan. He talked about it as scripts and scripting. And like a theater artist, he knew you needed to have good words carefully crafted. So attention to the words we use is very important to Eugene. And then also giving our magic value. Eugene, at every masterclass, every magic lecture was, we have to give our magic value. No one will think our magic has more value than we give to it ourselves. And these three areas are a deep part of his legacy. Giving your magic value. You know, we've talked about Eugene on, I think, every single 
episode. This is our 50th episode. I would not be surprised if his name uh, hasn't come up on every single one. And to have this uh, deep dive with Larry was so great. And to learn the, the secrets of this trick, like I said uh, in, to Larry, if I had uh, if I had read the book, which wasn't didn't exist. Larry's uh, book on Eugene. Yeah, Larry's yeah. book on Eugene. If I had read the second book that Larry wrote for Eugene of all the tricks, where the very last trick in that book is the trick that cannot be explained, I wouldn't have had a short story. Because the way Eugene lays out the trick, it is certainly challenging but it's not um it's not this incredible mountain that eli was facing so in a way i'm kind of glad i didn't although i'd seen like you i'd seen eugene do the trick i just didn't know that was his version of the trick that cannot be explained but it was great to hear a couple more eugene stories that we hadn't heard before uh and (laughs) for you to recount i just love that quote from him at these prices i almost always get the right card yeah and I, you know what, in hindsight, listening to the interview, I can make guesses based on my friendship with Eugene and listening to Larry. I can make some educated guesses as to why Eugene said, I'm not doing it that way. I'm doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And I think that the crux of the biscuit comes down to at these prices, I almost always get the right card. And so while I can see doing the trick that cannot be explained as jazz Mm -hmm. once in every 30 times, you get something that changes someone's life. But the other 29 times you get a card trick. Uh, The in Eugene's version, you, you almost always get something that is, flabbergasted to an audience and especially an audience of magicians as i think i mentioned i, I don't and mean to correct you but i don't think the word almost needs to be in there i yeah. don't think he ever failed with that trick no you're he, probably right you're you're probably right it, there was always a fantastic out yeah that he would have or a, a step up from that but the result was uh and and i you know i as we know uh am, am less a magician than you are and that's right? I'm not much of a magician, so yeah. right. I mean, we're but, both neophytes essentially. But reading the book, reading that chapter, and then watching for anyone who hasn't bought the book, you get access to, I would say, hours of yeah. Eugene, uh, and you get to see him do that trick again and again and again. And it is, it's designed to always be a miracle. Uh, it yeah. can be maybe a life changing miracle sometimes, but it's always he's never not going to score with it, and that's. Like you said, at these prices, uh, he's he's just not moving around. Yeah, he uh, and and I think it's the incredible respect he had for two things: one, the art of magic itself, but also his relationship with an audience. He didn't ever, I don't think, want them, nor would anybody. I, I, if you're serious about what you're doing, want an audience to go away thinking anything less than I have just seen a master at work. Uh, and, and that was, you, you know, I would think that that would be why Eugene said jazz isn't enough for me or my audiences. I'm going to reconfigure this so that I keep what looks like jazz, but make sure that at the end I get to a place where I knock their socks completely off their feet while their shoes are still on. Yeah. And that's, that was the genius of Eugene. Yep. Well, I want to thank Larry Haas again for chatting with us. It was 
so much fun. Really was uh, to chat with him, and I recommend uh, the books highly. Well, you know the thing about the books: if you are a non-magician, it's not a place to start. No, I it's mean, not. This is if you are listening to these podcasts and you're thinking, you know, I've always liked magic. I've always wanted to do magic. Don't start here because no, no. this is it'll frustrate you. Yeah, and not only will it frustrate you, but this is a master at work. Mm-hmm. And the, the the idea that this trick, the, the trick that cannot be explained, is the last trick in the last book that Eugene will ever, you know, says where that should fall in yeah. terms of your evolution as a magician. So if you want to learn magic, don't buy these books yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To work towards these books. Or, or buy them and hang on to them. But yeah, there's other places to start. Uh, next episode, we're going to continue listening to short stories. The next one is called The Crazy Man's Handcuffs. And joining us next time, and was she or was she not a delight? Jade is going to be here to talk to us about the, the perils and the pleasures of uh, strolling magic, of walk-around magic, of being in a corporate setting and going from group to group to group. And we've already recorded her interview, so I can tell you, and Jim, I think you may remember, she had a couple eye-opening moments of things she said that that you as a performer went, I'm taking that, and I'm taking that. That is so smart. And that's the, the... For me personally, uh, I don't, not, not the audience I hope is enjoying this, but for me personally, there's almost always something that I go, oh, that's great. This is going to, I'm using that tomorrow yeah. uh, in, in what I do, uh, not magically necessarily, because I don't do a lot of magic, but uh, as a performer, some of these principles just cut straight across, yep. Uh, yep. but it does very little to do with magic, has everything to do with uh, making the audience uh, experience something that is amazing or terrific or um, and and she had a couple of things that I was like holy crap that's I'm that's brilliant yeah yep and um, we've got some other great people coming up Ken Weber will be with us for one episode talking about his book uh, Maximum Entertainment 2.0 we've got David Williamson who's going to talk to us about convention stories it, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up so as mm-hmm. i mentioned hit the subscribe button if you haven't we haven't asked you to leave a review in a while so leave a review if you can but also if you buy if you have ideas of what you want and don't want in season 4 now is your time to go to elimarksmysteries.com click on the contact button and send us a little note saying hey this is this is what i'd love to hear don't single me out and say we want to get rid of him because <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm going to need to have at least five people say that before I'll even consider it. Oh okay, my maybe God. four people. Oh, my Lord. Don't Here worry about we it. Go. Don't worry about it's it. It's been fun, everybody. Thanks for having me. It's the best party I've ever been to. All right. Thanks, everybody. That is our 50th episode. We're back next time with Jade and Crazy Man's Handcuffs. See you next time. Take care, folks. <laughs> This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.